The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze with Grace Goller. Dealing with cancer is by no means easy to handle, but our program aims to make it easier through knowledge. Whether you've been recently diagnosed, are going through treatment right now, or are a survivor, our program will have points that you should hear. And by sharing our stories together, we'll make it truly a life-changing experience that you don't have to go through alone. Now, here is your host, Grace Goller. Welcome to today's Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Goller. And today we're going to be speaking with someone who works in the area of bereavement, grief, death, um, and is a funeral celebrant. Death is often the elephant in the living room, and no one mentions it. Working in a pro-life vocation myself with people with life-challenging illness, it's often difficult to broach the subject of death when someone wants to be very pro-life. But what do we do when life is not going to be prolonged and death is inevitable? And in fact, that will be the case for all of us at some point. So how and where do you find the tools to help you navigate your way through that process? So Beth O'Brien has studied for around about 20 years. She's researched and uh, worked with people who are experiencing loss and grief. In her work as a marriage and funeral celebrant, she feels privileged to work with people on what she calls the most important and memorable days of their lives. And Beth became so enthralled by stories and eulogies she heard, she decided to actually become a personal historian and is a member of the Association of Personal Historians. So the other thing that Beth does, she's a death cafe facilitator, and we'll be talking a lot about that during the show. She's a certified grief recovery specialist, grief educator, and an internationally certified funeral celebrant and trainer. So welcome to the show, Beth O'Brien. So Beth, uh, you have a vocation as a funeral celebrant and grief educator, and more recently qualified as a certified thanatologist it's a hard word to say first of all what is a thanatologist and can you tell our listeners about your early life and background why you chose um, to work with uh, this what has been a taboo subject death thanks grace a thanatologist is a professional who's involved in the academic and scientific study of death and dying it looks at the circumstances surrounding a person's death the grief experienced by the deceased loved ones and the larger social attitude towards death and its rituals and memorialisation. There's many differing disciplines of people who are thanatologists, and you need to complete a rigorous application and exam process to become certified. The Association of Death Education and Counselling, also called the Thanatology Association, is based in Illinois, but it's got a huge international presence and well-respected in thanatology. 
So I chose to work in this area. Um, I became a funeral celebrant 14 years ago and I realised then that no one seemed to talk a great deal about death. This just fascinated me that even in the last days of a person's life, no one was still wanting to speak about death. I also had the opportunity to work with lots of families who had lost a baby or a child as I was a young mum at the time. And then I saw another part of the community where no one knew what to say and what to do with people who had lost someone. <clears throat> it started me thinking, if not me, then who? And then I embarked on a new challenge of working out why people found talking about death so difficult. What also appealed to me personally was the authenticity and honesty of people who were glad to share their stories or their concerns with me and to have an open and warm conversation. It seemed like such a dichotomy. Mm. So we actually called this show uh, The Elephant in the Living Room. <laughs> and um, I think that's very apt in people's uh, you know, inability or, or not knowing how to talk about death, in fact. So for you, Beth... Um, how did you find it personally making the transition from a marriage celebrant to a funeral celebrant? I had been a marriage celebrant for six years before I did my first funeral. I always knew in my heart that one day I would perform funerals, but I was waiting for more life experience and frankly to be more mature. I found by the time I was in my late 30s, I was ready uh, to be a funeral celebrant and work with families. I really think that life experience and having lost one of my parents prepared me better to look after the task of being a funeral celebrant. Not all marriage celebrants become funeral celebrants. You definitely need to be grounded in your own self and have developed your own resilience. But unusually, matching up with that, you have to come to a point in your adult life where your heart is really open. Mm, good point. Um, as you know, I work with life-challenging illness and death is a subject that most avoid because with a lot of the, the New Age beliefs in particular, people see it as negative uh, because they're putting all their effort into survival methods. So I'm going to ask if you could speak to this point and from your experience, given the insights of how patients, friends and family might become more user-friendly with death without giving up on the pursuit for living life to the full and, and perhaps healing. Yeah, I've witnessed time and time again that when people can discuss death openly, whether they have a life-threatening illness in front of them or not, then they magically appear more relaxed and not so restless. It's like that elephant in the room has been talked about with their family and friends, hopefully, um, and they have an opportunity to be more relaxed for themselves so when their questions are answered then they have more time to look at their own spiritual development or plan out how they wish to live the rest of their lives i've seen some amazing moments when people take a deep look at death and then seem to reboot their lives for the next chapter with a wonderful determination to live their lives to the fullest in today's society death unfortunately is viewed as a failure as if it's unnatural People are denying its existence. People even think if they talk about it, it might hasten their death. One of my colleagues in America has a catch cry saying, um, talking about death will not make you death, like talking about pregnancy won't make you pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> um, but how people think about death really influences their personal experience on that last journey. 
when a person does have a life-threatening illness, they have the opportunity to live in the present whilst having the beautiful memories. And in a way, they might think this is unusual, but in a way, they're in a fortunate position in one way. They have the opportunity to say, I love you, to amend a hurt, to enjoy the things they can if they're able to, and to say goodbye. Mm, all really important things. So there's a lot that people miss out on if they don't put death on the table. Absolutely. And talk about it. So if we look from the point of view of doctors and other health practitioners, um, like myself in fact, we're in a u- unique position to discuss the issues surrounding death. So can you speak to how health practitioners and doctors can or might be educated to be comfortable and more user-friendly with discussions presenting life and death as the two sides of one coin? Except for some of the palliative care professionals, other medical staff I've met, whilst compassionate, still have great difficulty with the topic of death and grief. It's a generalisation, I know, but some see grief now as a medical condition Mm. instead of a normal human condition, Uh, instead of uh, allowing, allowing people a normal reaction when they lose someone significant. Of great concern to me on this topic is the decline in health professionals' university degrees having anything to do with the topic of death in their degree. Um, whether it's a thanatology unit or an end-of-life unit, they unfortunately have been disappearing in Australian degrees quite rapidly. There's a wonderful example, however, in Keene University in New Jersey, a professor called Dr Norma Bauer, who runs a death class. There's a great book written on her work. It's one of my favourite books, and it's called The Death Class. She has students on a waiting list for three years to join that class. When you read of her work, you feel uplifted and you can see it's more of a life class. So maybe if young people attended these classes, not only would they be more understanding of their patients in the future, but then they can also fully live their lives and understand how that can be more enriching. So it is a great concern that some of the professionals in our country are hedging away from the discussion of death as well. Mm. Um, I, I liked that uh, comment that you just had that grief is being treated as a, as a condition rather than a part of the natural human process mm. and I think that basically says it all. Um, Beth, you designed and performed your first funeral 14 years ago <coughs> apparently and since then uh, you've celebrated many services. From those experiences, I read that you became intrigued with the art of storytelling And then I saw you became a member of the Association of Personal Historians. So I'd like you to talk about the art of storytelling, which I've written quite a bit about myself. I think it's very important. Mm. Um, The importance of story as ritual in the remembrance of someone who's died. Mm, Absolutely. Well, I think it might have started even before that because English was my favourite subject at school and at university. And so I just love being able to write stories about people and I was just fascinated for most of my life about everyone's story. Fascinated by the Indigenous people of our country and how they told their stories differently from us. So it's always been a fascination. So after being a funeral celebrant, um, I became a little bit addicted to eulogies. (laughs) Um, I'd be sitting at someone's kitchen table listening to someone's life story and absolutely amazed at how interesting they'd been. And given Australia is a country uh, that's only been settled um, 200 years by 
the second wave of residents, not our Indigenous people, I sort of thought, you know, if you're talking about a, a grandparent, you're talking about 150 years' history of our own country. So I became pretty fascinated. I worked out that each person has a really amazing story um, and I was mesmerised about the intricacy of people's lives. But I'd also realised after performing services, I'd heard people saying, oh, I didn't even know Auntie Joan had done that. I didn't even know my dad was darts champion at work. So people hadn't even heard the stories of their own family. Mm. And that was just fascinating. So these thoughts about people's stories going being untold maybe thinking how how can we preserve these legacies so i decided to volunteer at my mother-in-law's nursing home to write some stories so each fortnight i met with a new lady and wrote anything she cared to tell me it was usually a timeline of her life but every now and then it would venture into some truth telling some secret sharing some crying for both of us and some laughing for both of us it was like these people were letting me into their secret gardens and simply because I asked them and showed them an interest. I would write their story, print it out, leave it in the top drawer of their dressing table, and off I'd go. Sometimes when one of these ladies died, I'd receive a phone call from a family member saying how pleased they'd found that folder in that drawer. After research, I found out about the Personal Historians Association and decided to start doing some education work with them. Their mission statement was just absolutely perfect for me and it says, we believe everyone has a story to tell and that every story matters. Our mission is to preserve those stories for prosperity and for, we hope for the future. So I see writing and preserving these memories and stories as an act of love and I believe in the digital area we will see preserving these stories at a whole new level. Uh, that's a fantastic answer. Thank you. I, I think you've just given people um, some sense of empowerment of something that they can do because most people um, will go and visit someone and sit there and talk very inanely. Um, but when people can actually write down a story and preserve it for later or maybe even record a story on a, on a machine, um, I think that's fantastic. So we are coming up to a um, break now on Navigating the Cancer Maze and when we come back I'm going to ask you to talk about the Death Cafe. This was an experience in fact that I had with you recently, uh, it's where we met and uh, it actually had quite a profound impact on me and I'm very very keen for you to introduce this to our listeners. So don't go away, we'll be back shortly on Navigating the Cancer Maze with Beth O'Brien. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Hulvang Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.hullvang-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G-clinic.com. 
or call us in Germany at 490-743-964-264. A not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. The Institute's founder has almost 40 years' experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Grace Scholar Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at gracegoller.com or visit their website at gracegollerinstitute.com. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Welcome back. You're on Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gawler. Today, speaking with Beth O'Brien, who is a funeral celebrant and grief educator. Um, Beth, I'm going to ask you to tell us about the Death Cafe. Um, Muffins and um, talking about death during an afternoon may not be everyone's cup of tea. Um, But um, as I said before the break, I actually went to one of these, which you said wasn't as you know, a classic death cafe. But I'd like you to describe what happens at these meetings, um, how they're advertised, and if you can describe your experience as a facilitator at death cafe. Well, the death cafe was a concept that originated by a gentleman called Bernard Kratos, who is a Swiss sociologist, and then it built into an international social franchise. So it's not-for-profit, it's about joining with the community, and the people that got it to that point were John Underwood and Sue Barsky-Reed, and they're in the UK. So the movement's been underway across the world since 2010. Currently there are 1,008 death cafes, and only three months ago it was 700. So obviously mm. there's lots to be talked about. The death cafe is an opportunity to open the conversation about death. Its whole objective is to increase the awareness of death with a view to helping people make the most of their lives. So we begin the meetings with cake and coffee and tea. Sometimes we're in places where people might be having lunch or, or breakfast. It's all, always food, always cake and always cuppa. <laughs> we tell everyone when they come that the Death Cafe is open, respectful and confidential space where they can openly discuss any topic they want about death. Uh, Neil, Neil is the funeral director who uh, I work with. Neil and I aren't allowed to lead anyone in a conversation. We're there to listen and to segue the conversations where possible and to offer any of our knowledge if, if we can. We remind people that it's, um, each of us should respect people's right to a faith or no faith. Everyone's welcome. Being a facilitator of the Death Cafe had some bonuses that I didn't see on the horizon. It it has enriched my knowledge and my understanding of people so much. People are so loving and so willing to talk about death and their experiences. I didn't anticipate all the things I would learn. 
and all the wisdom that some elderly people have brought into the room, which is wonderful. Um, so it, it's a space about not just death, it's a space about wisdom and a space about love. And I often go home inspired. Mm. <laughs> um, have you got any links and resources that you can provide for um, people who are interested, might like to explore a website or get involved with you know, running a death cafe? Sure. Um, the International Death Cafe's website is www.deathcafe.org or .com works as well. Mm-hmm. Our death cafe here in Queensland is on Facebook, so facebook.com forward slash death cafe Queensland. And you can find us on that one and all the other ones across the world and how to become a facilitator um, on deathcafe.org. Great. And I will put all of these resources and links, as usual, on my blog, which is grayscallermedia.com, for any of you who want to take that down and uh, look at that after the show today. So uh, you mentioned you're in partnership there with a funeral director at the Death Cafe groups. Um, One usually only encounters a funeral director at the time when, you know, you've had a death in the family. So how do people kind of warm to the idea of speaking with a funeral director? Um, There's lots of questions, obviously, that could be asked, should be asked, um, but often are not asked. So what is his role with you in the Death Cafe? What sort of questions do people tend to ask? My, my co-facilitator is Neil Davis, and he works for Simplicity Funerals, and people actually love to have questions with Neil. I think I could put Neil on a talking circuit. So Neil is a professional who's really interested in working with families to have the send-off that they wish for their families, and I think people immediately get that he's a pretty open-hearted person, and I think that's how we've been friends for so many years, because we're on the, the same same idea that you know we're there to look after the community of people when he answers all of their questions they feel that they're getting factual advice from a friend rather than a funeral director often they'll say they spent a lot of time on the internet searching and researching and seem to have just come to a brick wall and they just want to talk to a human who they can trust to answer their questions accurately so if more people interviewed their funeral directors at a point in time when they didn't need them, <laughs> they'd realise what a bonus this can be. Right. So at the time of death, they don't need to be up at 3am in the morning looking on the internet trying to find a funeral director that fits with their family and, and their value system. If they've done that beforehand, then they can be present in the room with the person who's just died and focus their attentions on their own goodbyes rather than not looking at how do I... Um, project manage finding a funeral director so some of the common questions that people ask him and uh, they're pretty frequent some of these ones so here's the list what happens when I'm at home and my loved one dies what do I do how long can I have my loved one at home before I need to pick up a phone mm-hmm. so it's about in our work here in Neil's discussion with these people it's about giving the power back to families to look after their deceased family member. So also, can I decorate the coffin? Should I prepay my funeral? Does everyone have to have a service in a chapel or can I go somewhere else? Are there more environmentally friendly options? 
and have you seen any ghosts? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so they, they feel that they can ask those questions and get some um, a real human to tell them um, with his life experiences rather than searching everything on the internet. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And I thought some of the questions at the death cafe I attended were, were really terrific questions. And there was a lot of things there I didn't know that I came away feeling like, you know, I had a, a real sense of that from now on. I'm going to just put another question in here, Beth, because we talked <coughs> earlier about um, you being a humanist in your work. Um, and I guess that also comes out in the way Death Cafe is, is projected because it's very non-denominational mm. and giving people a voice. Can you speak to that question, what is a humanist in this particular avenue of work? Well, a humanist is a person who believes in the right of all humans to celebrate their faith or to celebrate having no faith. Humanists are people who live their life in an ethical manner uh, where they show respect and courtesy to the other humans, our earth, the animals, and allow people, they encourage all people to have the freedom of free, free thought, um, for everyone hopefully to have an education and for everyone to consider their own spiritual development if that's where they want to head. So it's about living an ethical life without a deity. Mm, great. Thanks for explaining that. Um, recently, uh, as last year, I think it was, we attended uh, a funeral of a Serbian man and there was a lot of open outpouring of grief and the body was there and people were invited to view the body. Um, and many cultures have quite intensive death rituals. Uh, this is not usual in, in our society. So what, in your experience, do you believe is the biggest obstacle to acknowledging the reality of our mortality in our Western society? And um, how can we help to change that? Well, in our country, 70% of the funerals are performed by funeral celebrants rather than clergy. And that's just happened in a switch around over the last 15 years, which holds true with the... Um, Bureau of Statistics data that says Australia is a highly secular society but this doesn't mean we're not spiritual so we've got this um, secular building community um, but people are still interested in spirituality. Currently on Australian TV which might be of interest for people in America they can still go to the webpage and see it there's a TV show called Compass on ABC TV in Australia and it's got five um, one-hour shows on death rituals in Australia from all the different cultures. It is absolutely fantastic series. I highly encourage everyone having a look at the different faiths, the people who don't celebrate faiths, a really great-looking mm, Western um, death rituals at the moment. But anyhow, when we're reminded of mortality our own mortality, people seem in this generation to look to ways to self-soothe. So people unfortunately look to, for relief mechanisms like food, drugs, alcohol, violence to other people and behaviours that numb how they feel. So in these moments they become distance in their relationship and they're losing their connections with their family and their community. So we've got this movement away from connections with others. In our fast-paced lives... We don't give ourselves enough time for reflection and rest. 
and everyone seems to wear the word busy like it's some sort of achievement badge. So I believe it's the breakdown in compassionate human relationships that have left many of us avoiding the topic of what is the narrative of my life story going to be and how am I going to value my time here. So people are searching for meaning in all the wrong places and each of us would be better off being kind and compassionate towards others and then that would enhance our own sense of value and purpose and meaning. So people are trying to find meaning and they're wandering, wandering around in circles trying to find it. So I think it's time that this taboo subject becomes part of our past and that we talk openly about death. The death cafes is just one example and there are many people across the world who are trying to have this conversation in their community. Dying Matters is a British organisation as another example of getting the conversation out there. So we need to reinvent also the rite of passage that is death. These ceremonies should reflect more, recognise and cherish the life of the person lived. They should be ceremonies that mark the human need to make sense of the world, to create meaning and structure to life an opportunity to discuss our cultural heritage, which seems to be a little bit left out at the moment. And these rites of passage are about celebrating um, lives, but also anchoring points for the people whose lives are still ongoing. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, we'll be back shortly on Navigating the Cancer Maze. Don't go away. each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller from the Grace Goller Institute as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the cancer maze. The Grace Goller Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.gracegollerinstitute.com or email institute at gracegoller.com. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Hulvang Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.hulvang-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G dash clinic dot com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at one 866 472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in 
to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze today with death the big subject for the day and we're with Beth O'Brien so um, we've talked about Death Cafe Beth, you're in a unique position where you meet a family for less than a week and they're grieving and yet with these new acquaintances it must be amazing to build this sense of trust and intimacy with them very quickly can you share your process around that and tell us about your description from your blog where you describe this process as distinguishable days. Yes, distinguishable days is, you know, it looks at the four pillars, um, birth, maturity, marriage and death as milestones in a person's or a family's life. So when a funeral celebrant enters into a grieving family home, we're actually in a very honourable position. We're given the responsibility of listening to the stories and working with the families to design a really dignified farewell. I use the word dignified rather than loving, as some people who die are not a loved one. Mm. So we need to be quite honest and frank that not everyone who dies in a family or a friendship group is a nice person, but we still want to dignify that life. So as a funeral celebrant, we get to see life and death up close and at times very personal. In less than a few hours... A family gives over to us their hopes for the service and their trust, not only for us to design and orchestrate the ceremony, but to make it a lifetime memory. And we only get one chance at that. Every person can remember quite well, even when they're numb, what a funeral. They don't remember the words that we say. They just remember how it felt. So we need to make sure that it feels right for that family. Maybe their baby had died from SIDS. And they're in a complete and other universe when we go to interview them. Maybe they found their son who had suicide. Sometimes I work with families so numb that they can't interact with you. Maybe their baby has died from SIDS and they're in another universe when you want to interview them. Maybe they found their son who had suicided. Being a funeral celebrant is very diverse. Some people assume it's just about elderly people dying, but it's about life and how we recognise and celebrate the connections we have with the people we share our own life with. Some good, some bad. If you speak to any person about a funeral of their mum, their dad, their wife, their husband, their son, their daughter, their best friend, they can tell you how it felt and what they remembered about it. In the last decade, everyone seems to talk about a celebration of life, and it is, but I like to remind them that they're also there to mourn and to say goodbye. There needs to be a balance their healing to begin. I guess this question leads on uh, from the last one, uh, Beth. Um, can you talk about grief, <coughs> bereavement, and how, how the actual how of people, um, how they can deal with the loss of a loved one? Yeah, I've spent the last 15 years studying academically the topics of loss, grief, and bereavement, and I found myself last year thinking, what could I actually practically do to assist people to experience their grief and loss fully and then to heal and then enjoy their life. I had experienced lots of information in my head but I knew I preferred to leave with my heart. I decided to travel to Los Angeles last year and to study with the grief recovery method in Los Angeles. 
it changed everything for me. In terms of having a course of action, a set of tools to help people with their loss and grief. This year I started running individual programs and groups using that method. Whilst I felt after my training that it was a wonderful workshop, it wasn't until I actually led my own courses and sessions that I realised that I could actually help people recover from grief while still holding their loving bonds and memories with the people that they'd lost. Seeing the program in action was a game changer for me. Moving through intense emotional pain is a misunderstood process. No one teaches it to us as we grow up and most people have no idea how to respond to that pain. Recovery doesn't mean getting over the person you died. Recovery means getting better for yourself. It means claiming your circumstances instead of them claiming you and your happiness. So recovery is finding new meaning in life without the fear of being hurt again. And it's acknowledging that it's perfectly all right to feel sad from time to time and to talk about those feelings no matter how people around you react. When people use the expression time heals all wounds, it absolutely drives me crazy. Because if time could do that, we'd all just sit around and wait for it to wash over us. In the Grief Recovery Method program, we look at some of those phrases that don't assist people in their recovery. And the program's an action program to assist in grief recovery, not simply waiting for time. So for people, to assist them in dealing with their loss of a loved one, maybe they could start by contemplating some of these thoughts. Allow yourself time to think. Don't always be busy. Allow yourself to participate in the painful feelings. Don't push them aside. And that takes courage. Allow yourself some time off from the grief every now and then. You are just adjusting to the new normal. What's your normal life from now going to be? It's okay to smile and laugh. It doesn't mean you don't miss and love them. Find a safe person. That's a really important one. Someone you can talk openly with who will listen to your story over and over again. That is a true friend. Consider a program or a support group where you can discuss your feelings or consider a counsellor if you need one. However, most people can grieve fully on their own with loved ones' support. Mm, thank you for that. I think there's some very good tips there. Um, the next question I have for you, it's, it's two parts to it. Um, and it's often not addressed. Grief and bereavement and loss don't only happen with a physical death. If you think about it, that's quite obvious. <coughs> For instance, many people have said to me when their partner left them, it felt worse than a death. The, the death was at least final. But it was challenging to accept the finality of an event when there was no physical death. Um, the same can be said with people who lose a part of their body, perhaps a leg or um, they've had big bowel surgery. And it's a grief that nobody sees um, because there's not a physical death. Um, can I have your thoughts and insights around that? Yeah, the word loss isn't used as well as it could be in the space of uh, loss and grief. So there's many losses. In fact, when we were studying, they talk about 40 different categories of loss that you can have over your lifespan. Mm. Loss of jobs, loss of culture, loss of trust, loss of limbs, loss of uh, relationships. Uh, so many um, huge moments in people's life. 
So in the grief recovery method, we talk about this loss. And one of the biggest losses, other than the most obvious people gravitate towards grief, they gravitate towards death. But one of the biggest losses is the end of a relationship, with the most popular one being the end of a marriage. So recently at one of my groups, and it was a real learning moment for me, one of the ladies explained that if her ex-husband had died, it would have actually been easier. Mm. So a couple who are divorced are still parents and still grandparents, and they actually still have a lifetime relationship. So if that relationship isn't pleasant, then they can foresee that every special family memory ahead of them has the possibility of being spoiled. Yeah. It's a huge loss to think of your future memories out there as already being tainted. There's no final event. Here people are confronted time and time again with their pain when they envisage this on their horizon. So that is a major loss, thinking that your life ahead is going to be interrupted with painful moments. In adults, sometimes death is sudden and unexpected, whilst other deaths are more expected, uh, and perhaps even protracted in the case of life-challenging illness over many years. Um, yeah, can you speak to that? Um, because there are children who actually... Um who die young um, versus, uh, say, someone, grandpa, who's had a really long and protracted um, uh, demise. And uh, that's another scenario, isn't mm. it? The most unexpected deaths are accidents, cot deaths and suicides. It's a natural reaction for people to believe that they will die before their children. So when their children die before them, they feel like the whole universe is out of sync, as do grandparents. Uh, so it's, it seems more, more of a tsunami uh, when an unexpected death happens in a family. And with accidents and suicides, there's also that, that next level of, I didn't get to say goodbye. Mm. It just happened so quickly. What a lot of the community don't realise also with accidents and suicides is not only is it a grieving process, but you've got another devastation as a sideline, and that's the police and coroner's process. Um, I remember visiting um, a family, the first uh, cop death child that came into uh, my care, and I went in there sort of unwarned in a way. I didn't realise that that family home was a crime scene. Literally had police taping around the nursery, and that the mother and father were suspect one and suspect two. Wow. So we're, we're dealing with other things when we're having uh, cot deaths and suicides that people may not expect. Um, so quite, quite a harsh area uh, for families. And I guess the moral of the story here is to seek help and uh, hopefully the resources that we're going to give people uh, at the end of the show and on the blog... Uh, are going to give them a place to go so that they don't have to be alone with that um, pain that you so eloquently described. So we'll be back on Navigating the Cancer May shortly. Don't go away. Learn to navigate the cancer maze with trusted professionals in cancer health care. The Grace Goller Institute, a not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. 
The Institute's founder has almost 40 years' experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Gray Scholar Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at grayscholar.com or visit their website at grayscholarinstitute.com. Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Scholar from the Grace Scholar Institute as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the cancer maze. The Grace Scholar Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.gracescholarinstitute.com or email institute at gracescholar.com. Nestled in the heart of Germany's Black Forest is a very special clinic where breakthrough cancer medicine is offered to cancer patients around the world. Hulvung Private Oncology Clinic is one of the leading establishments in biological cancer therapy. The clinic offers personalized cancer medicine, including genetic testing for detecting and applying targeted treatments. The clinic's ethic is to deliver treatments that are as conventional as necessary and natural as possible. For your personalized cancer treatment, please contact the clinic via their website at www.hulvung-clinic.com. That's H-A-L-L-W-A-N-G-clinic.com. Or call us in Germany at 490-7443-964240. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at one 866 472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Welcome back to our last session today on Navigating the Cancer Maze and I've been talking and will be talking in this session with Beth O'Brien. Um, Beth, what about bereavement and loss when there's been a suicide? That's another pretty special case. Yeah, in this loss the main question the grieving person asks is why. Even if the person had a long struggle with mental illness, it's still a shock when it happens and they're still asking why. So grief and bereavement is an individual experience, even for family members who have lost the same person. But the intensity in suicide situations often comes from people outside the family who don't understand how the person took their life or why, and often they're not very compassionate. And, and mm. what happens here for those families is it becomes you know, a second taboo topic of death, and it just seems to dive even further down into the not-talked-about category. People don't understand suicide very well in our communities, so families don't get chances to talk about that loved one ever. People just see the suicide. They don't see the 35 years lived before that or the 15 years lived before that. And 
people still want to tell the story of their loved one and they don't seem to get those opportunities. That, you know, we need to sort of re-educate the community into um, people with a mental health issue that takes them to the journey of taking their own life is actually quite a courageous moment for them to take their life. And it's a decision made out of love. They love their family and friends and they think that their family and friends would be better off without them, so they take their life. They're not in their right mind, that's why they make that decision. So a whole heap of love and compassion really needs to come into the conversation of suicides. So if we're talking about the death of a friend, that has a big impact, we know that. Um, but the death of a close family member, that does sever strong bonds. That's the DNA, in other words. In particular, can you speak to this area of grieving the loss of a parent? I know people who, uh, their parents are quite old, but when they've died, the, the loss has been very intense. Yeah, even though someone has a 90-year-old mum, for instance, and, and you know that in the not-too-distant future she's going to die... It doesn't make it any less painful or um, tearful. You just miss that person so deeply. In fact, the fact that they've lived so long, you've had a wonderful long relationship with them and it's over many years and lots of wonderful memories um, can make it seem more intense. Even though you know it's going to happen, it's still a shock when it does happen. So when people lose a parent, there's, there's mixed feelings sometimes. It does depend on the relationship that they've had with that person. When they lose both parents, adults feel like an adult orphan. And that's actually something that's studied across the, uh, the universe, the concept of an adult orphan. Mm. And at that time, that person confronts their own mortality. And now they're the oldest generation. My, my husband lost both his parents and his only sibling. And then he became an adult orphan and he found it a very restless time. And I said, well, you still have a family. You still have me and the children. And he said, but it's not my family of origin. It's not the people who know my stories. I haven't got a sibling now to share my stories with. So it's a moment of reflection for people. People still have lifelong bonds with parents they just are learning to live without them physically being in their lives. So they reflect on what they've learnt from their parents and how they can use that knowledge to create their own legacy. So if they've had a loving relationship, the hope is that they'll find a way to hold on to that continuing bond and live their life more fully. But if they haven't had a loving relationship, perhaps it's time to do some work on themselves to resolve some of that unresolved grief so they too can then live a more fuller life. You've shared a lot of um, hard-earned, hard-won wisdom today um, in studying this particular subject, Beth. Uh, can you describe the trainings and courses that you provide and where any of our listeners from East Coast Australia or indeed internationally, uh, people who specialise in grief bereavement training, um, can you provide some resources for that and tell us about your training? Sure. Um, information about my work in grief recovery method is available on my webpage, which is called seasonsofgrief.com.au. Grief recovery method has an international webpage, and we also have griefrecoverymethod.com.au. 
So um, Amanda is uh, looks after Grief Recovery Method in Australia and I'm one of the teachers in that field. And as a funeral celebrant, um, my training company is called Australian Celebrations Training.com.au. If you're an American person and you're interested in being a funeral celebrant, I would highly, highly recommend Doug and Glenda Manning, who are, their website is insight.com.au. No, sorry, not .com.au, .com. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and also a wonderful lady whose blog I love to follow, and she talks really on a down-to-earth, what I call a kitchen table conversation about how to deal with losing someone you've loved. Her name's Marty Towsley, T-O-U-S-L-E-Y, and Marty's webpage is griefhealing.com. Fantastic. Thanks for that. And we will list those on the Grey School and Media blog that you can check into after the show today. Um, something that uh, was introduced to me at the Death Cafe was the Advanced Care Planning Initiative, um, Beth. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? And are there schemes like that in place, other, in places around the world, for instance? Absolutely. There's um, many countries who have advanced health directives or advanced care planning initiatives. So an advanced health directive um, gives people the opportunity to tell the story of their wishes medically um, for their palliative care and their death. It's far more freeing for people to make those decisions when they're well enough to do so. So it's contained in a document that is then given to the hospital or the doctors or the palliative care team. So it clearly states the wishes of that person in terms of medication, in terms of life support. Uh, it allows partners and families, say, when that person is ill, they're not worrying about these health wishes. It's already contained in this document. In the future, there's talk about making them digital records so that they would be in any health facility when you turn up there for care. A really interesting uh, palliative care nurse told me that one of the hard moments in a family's life is when someone decides to switch off life support. When a healthcare directive is in place, then that's a task of the nurse or the doctors rather than the loved one standing in the room. So she said it was much nicer um, for a mum like myself not to have my children think, oh, I tur mum turned the switch off on dad. That's part of the medical decision. It's much nicer then to just be in that hospital room as a wife and a mum in that moment and let the health professionals um, worry about the life support. My wish is that more doctors would openly encourage people to have this conversation with them and to complete those forms. Even young people, if there's a car accident, what are their wishes? Do they want to donate organs? Do they want to be kept on life support? So it's a conversation for every adult. Great, and I will put those resources um, on the Grey School and Media blog as well for anyone who's interested in getting more information about that. Now, uh, Beth, we've talked about a lot of things today. Um, are there any issues around the subject of death that we've not touched on but that you would like to address before we close? It's quite a huge topic, but I'll try and make it as brief as I can. So I'd like to talk about the way the people of the world use the word closure. I believe it's so overused, and I think it can halt the true progress of grief. 
For instance, a daughter that is missing is found dead and now all of a sudden the family have closure. That makes it feel to them like their grief is over now that they have a body. I would prefer people think of small closings along the journey rather than closure. An absolutely must-watch TED Talk is by a lady called Nancy Burns. It's called Beyond Closure. It is an absolute must to watch in terms of how we use this word closure in the grief discussions across the world. Fantastic. So thank you very much for your time today. Um, I've really, really enjoyed these questions and I know that people are going to find them of great value. So we'll be back next week on Navigating the Cancer Maze. Thanks so much, Beth O'Brien. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Please join your host, Grace Goller, again next Friday at 12 noon U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Remember, cancer is not something you have to face alone. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.